God, thank you so much that we get to be together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, God, that we get to explore your word, God. Thank you, Lord, that you have preserved it for us. Lord, I ask that as we dive into it tonight, that we would just meet with you. Um, as Michael said, like, that is why we gather. We gather for your name, God. We gather for your glory, God. Jesus, we're just so thankful for all that you've done. Thank you for getting us through this last week with all the different challenges and joys that it had. Um, thank you, Lord, that we get to be back together tonight. Um, we love you. We praise you. Come have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, yeah, it is such a pleasure to be back here. Um, for those of you who don't know, I've been around Thrive for a little bit. Um, I started going to Thrive in August of 2012, um, which makes me kind of old, I guess. Um, and yeah, I've seen Thrive in a bunch of different locations, and it's always a pleasure just to be back here and be all together, because I'm from this area. In fact, my sister is also here. Hi, Rachel. Sorry to embarrass you. <laughs> um, yes. So it is always good to be back here. Last time we had just had the snow, and tonight we had the rain. And so, careful what happens if you invite me back again, because who knows, the weather might get worse. Um, so yeah. So as we jump in tonight, I want to talk about this concept, this idea of rules. Rules. Don't you just love that? Doesn't that make you just feel good? Rules. Ugh. This last year we've all dealt with rules, masks, and like, all this kind of stuff. And don't you ever like feel weird about breaking rules? And doesn't this like era that we're in like make you want to break rules sometimes? But we're talking about rules. And because we've had this last year, and because many of you drive cars, I know that we've all broken rules. Because, I don't know about you, but I definitely see the um, speedometer, and then I look at the uh, side on the side of the road and realize, hmm, those things do not match, and I am definitely exceeding the speed limit. Now is the time to slow down. But another rule that like I've experienced before is the seatbelt law, right? Seatbelts are important, right? Especially in this country. However, I definitely have been in other countries where I feel no qualms about cramming about 14 people into a Honda CRV, a place where there are no seatbelt rules. You see, rules have different meanings depending on where they are at. Rules are contextualized. Now, I love telling people when I was growing up that there's these two really obscure rules. One of them's in Washington State. And it says that in Washington state, it's illegal to carry a concealed weapon over six feet in length. Six feet in length? As a kid like this tall, I'm like, how could anyone even hold something that big? Like, let alone conceal it. You'd have to be like, hidden in like a trench coat from the top of your head, like, past your shoe. Like, that'd be ridiculous. And there's another law that I thought was ridiculous that I'd love to tell people. And it was that it's illegal to kill whales in Colorado. Colorado's a landlock. Like, also ludicrous, right? <laughs> How could you kill a whale in Colorado unless you're like a vet at a zoo and that's really sad and whether or not whales should be in the zoos is another thing altogether. But the point is that rules are contextualized. Rules are contextualized. So there's specific scenarios, there's specific reasons for rules and specific situations in which they exist. In fact, if you search the internet more, you'll find even more ridiculous rules throughout the country, throughout the world, that exist. For example, I found out that it's illegal to look for moose in Alaska from an airplane. Like, that's another odd rule. Now, when we interpret that through the lens of people in Alaska like to hunt, Alaska's a great place to go hunting. So it's more of like an ethical law about hunting ethically. That makes a lot of sense. But a rule that I really had a hard time figuring out was that in Minnesota, it's illegal to cross the state line with a duck on your head. I cannot figure out why that is, if this is like someone just like really obscurely interpreting this rule, or what. But that was another law that I found. So, 
If you're a duck wearer, please do not go to Minnesota and try to cross the border. You might get in trouble. Or maybe no one cares anymore. I don't know. I don't know the time period when that rule was enacted, when duck wearing was a normal thing. But the point is that rules have an importance and they have a specific situation when they were put together. A specific situation that made them really make sense. And without understanding the sense and the culture in which they're put together, we just end up confused and lost. In the same way, as you look tonight at our passage of scripture, there are some rules that are happening. There's some laws that are being talked about. And it gets kind of confusing. Without like a really robust knowledge of the Old Testament, sometimes the things that Jesus is interacting with, with like the Pharisees specifically and others, just get so confusing because you're like, Jesus, like, what are you doing? And, like, the Pharisees, what are you doing? Why are you, like, so upset about, like, whether or not the disciples are eating food? Or whether or not the disciples are, um, like, fasting at the right times? Or eating grain? Or whatever it is. Washing hands. What is going on? So, as you go through tonight, and as you look at the passages of Scripture, keep this idea in your mind. Rules. What is their context? What are they speaking to? And how do they inform um, both the people in the day and how do they inform the conversations that Jesus had with other people? And what should they speak to us today? But before we go any further, I have a quick question. Pharisees, does anyone know where they came from? From the fair? From the fair. I see where you're going there. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. Um, they came from like a sect of trying to interpret the rules. A sect that was trying to interpret the rules. Yeah, but the thing about the Pharisees is it's really hard to figure out biblically where the Pharisees come from. Because as you read the Old Testament, there's really not a place for them. In fact, from creation to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah, chronologically, the entirety of the Old Testament, there's no place for the Pharisees. You don't read about them anywhere. But then when we get to the New Testament in Matthew, boom, all of a sudden, there's this group of people who apparently have a bit of clout. They're religious leaders, but they're not like it's necessarily in the temple. They're not like in the temple, rather they're scattered throughout the countryside in synagogues in different towns. It's not even the countryside, it's the cities. They're scattered throughout and they have clout in their society and they're like a recognized class and they really, really care about this one thing, rules. So, um, just a quick thing, uh, where they come from. Hmm, how do I say this? In the Old Testament, there's this thing that happens where the people of God, the Israelites, are following God. Then they stop following God. Then bad things happen. Usually they lose wars, they get deported, and they just all around don't, things don't go well for them. The Pharisees, as we read in the New Testament, read between the lines and see what's happening, they really don't want that to happen again, and so they become committed to the laws. They become committed to specifically the oral laws and the traditions. So I'm not specifically saying where they come from. There's a couple different theories about where they actually come from specifically, but that's a subject for another time. But just the big thing to note is that the Pharisees were people who cared a lot about the law, they cared about the oral tradition, and they cared about following the rules. And the other thing that I really want to point out before we get started, in fact, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to talk about this whole time. And that is this, that Jesus is the Messiah. And the way that he communicates to the Pharisees and the way that he communicates to the people who are challenging him and he's having discussions with proves that he is Messiah. And that his 
law, and his um, authority supersedes the law. It supersedes the rules. So I'm going to go ahead and read the passage of Scripture tonight, and then we will figure out what in the world is going on. So a bit of context as we jump into that. We are in the third of five stories that are different um, interactions between the Pharisees and the people and with Jesus. So this is the, we're going to tonight look at the third, the fourth, and the fifth story. So there's quite a bit of scripture we're going to go through, so fasten your seatbelts and get ready for a ride in scripture. All right, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Here we go. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests feast fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskin. If he does, the wine will burst and the skins and the wine is destroyed. The right will excuse me. The wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their sadness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So there we have it, the third, the fourth, and the fifth stories that we are dealing with. I'm now going to turn the page. There we go. Excellent. So let's jump back to that first section. Fasting. Fasting is a really comfortable topic, isn't it? Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Hmm. So John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. So this first conflict that's happening is the Pharisees are upset because Jesus, rather, Jesus' disciples are not fasting, but John's disciples, who apparently are pretty radical, and the Pharisees, they're all fasting. So there's this culture of fasting that's a part of the culture there. 
In fact, by this point, fasting once a week was a pretty normal thing. It was like part of the tradition that the Pharisees held, and many people in Israel held at that time. So in response to this accusation that Jesus, rather, the, Jesus and his disciples are not following this tradition, Jesus responds with three analogies. Now the first one is pretty intense, because Jesus says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. This is a bold statement, because Jesus is essentially saying, my disciples cannot fast because I am with them. I am the bridegroom. That's what Jesus is saying. And like, I don't know if you know a whole lot about Jewish weddings, but they're like pretty exciting events. Like, it's not just like a one day thing, but it's like a multiple day thing. It's a celebration. It's a celebration done right too, because it's joyous, there's lots of dancing, um, there's lots of food. It is exactly that, a celebration, feasting. And Jesus says, because he is with the disciples, that's what's going on right there. But Jesus continues, he doesn't just stop by saying that like, I am the bridegroom, but he says this in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So it's not as if Jesus is abolishing fasting. He's not saying fasting is no longer a thing we do. Rather, what he's saying is that right now we are celebrating because we are together. The disciples and I are together, and we must celebrate because this is a festival time. But he's also promising that there will come a time when I will no longer be with them, and on that day they will fast. You see, Jesus is pointing out the fact that he is the Messiah. He's alluding to the fact that he is going to leave, that he is going to die on a cross for their sins and for all sins. It's a thing that is coming, that has not come yet. And then fasting will happen. Then the disciples will fast. But that's not the only thing he says. He also talks about clothing. So the second analogy is this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now, I don't know how many of you sew. Um, I have never done any sewing, nor do I have any experience with unshrunk cloth and shrunk cloth, except when I leave stuff in the dryer too long, and then I go to put it on, and my like, arms pop out, and I'm like, shoot, that was a lot longer last time I wore it. Um, but that's like the limit of my experience. But what he's essentially saying here is that if you were to take the, he's essentially saying that the Pharisees and the traditions that they're following is like a pre-shrunk cloth. It is what it's already going to be. The law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament, it is what it is. And in order to like fix it, in order to um, have Jesus really fulfill that, he can't take um, the new cloth and put it on it, but rather he has to put new cloth on a new cloth patch on new cloth because new and old cloth break when they come together. That sounded really strange and confusing. <laughs> the point is that you can't take a new cloth and put it on an old cloth. But then he continues by talking about wine. And again, I don't have a lot of experience with wine, but I know about the fermentation process. And essentially what happens is if you take wine, and it's like still in the early stages of fermenting, and you put it into a wine skin, it affects it. It expands. But if you try to do the same thing, try to take a new wine and put it in an old wineskin, the new, the old wineskin has already expanded. So all it will do is break and fall out on the ground. Jesus in all of these analogies is saying that he is doing a new thing. 
and the old covenant is no longer suitable for containing the new thing that Jesus is doing. The old covenant points to the new covenant, it points to Jesus as the Messiah and what he is doing, but it isn't able to really contain it. The relationship of the Old Testament doesn't work with the relationship we can have with Jesus in the New Testament. In this passage, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the bridegroom, and that is a moment of celebration. He is doing a new thing. He has promised that in the future, the disciples will fast. He has promised that a new normal is going to happen. A new relationship with Jesus is possible. A new relationship with God is possible. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. He is changing all things. And he is going to um, prove that. Let's read forward to see how that happens. So verse 18, excuse me, wrong page. Verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read? Let's pause right there, actually. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So what are the disciples doing as they're walking through the grain fields? They're plucking grain, they're rubbing it through their hands, they're getting rid of that outer husk, and then they're eating it, because, like, they're hungry. And there's very specifically in the Old Testament, specifically Deuteronomy 23 and 25, a provision for this. When you're walking through your neighbor's field and you see something and you're hungry, well, it's okay if you, like, pluck it and eat it and, like, survive. Like, that's great. I mean, you're not allowed to, like, pluck it and harvest it and, like, take all of it and store it up. That's called stealing. But if you take enough to survive and just eat, like, that's totally okay. Like, don't get dead. Eat food. It's important. <laughs> so, like, that's what's happening. But the Pharisees are like, sure, like, that's a provision. That's the okay thing to do. But they're doing it on the Sabbath. And that is totally work. And on the Sabbath, we definitely rest. In fact, we're so specific about our rest that the way we rest is super regulated. There's a certain number of steps you can take on the Sabbath. A Sabbath day's walk. That's why in Scripture, um, it refers to once a Sabbath day's walk away from Jerusalem, I think it is. I should have looked that up. Um, but um, how you lived on the Sabbath and how you did work on the Sabbath mattered. In fact, you weren't allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. And um, where that comes from is Exodus 34, 21. So does picking grain constitute work? Clearly, according to the Pharisees, it does. In fact, speaking of interesting Sabbath rules, um, and even in modern Judaism, specifically Hasidic Judaism, which is a bit more of the conservative branch, there are many things that are not, you're not allowed to do because it's considered work. Things like even turning on a light switch. And I found this super interesting because the act of turning on a light switch is causing electricity to flow to an object to turn it on, specifically a light. But one of the things that's prohibited is building a fire on the Sabbath. And so electricity is similar to a fire, so just to be sure that we don't break the Sabbath laws, we're going to do, so we're not going to turn on the light switch to turn on the lights because we don't want to start a fire which is not lawful on the Sabbath. That's the extent that we're talking about of keeping, of the, of the Pharisees are talking about keeping their distance from breaking the rules on the Sabbath. Not even turning on the light switch, or in their context, starting a fire. And in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, Jeremiah 17 or Isaiah 58 or 56, one of the problems that the Jewish people have is that they have not kept the Sabbath. And that is sometimes in those specific passages, one of the reasons that they are not doing well is they haven't kept God's law. 
And so it stands to reason, and honestly, I have a lot of empathy for the Pharisees here, because they really are trying not to uh, break the law. They're really trying to do the right thing. They care about following God's law. But the extent to which they do it, they have lost something. But what is Jesus' response to them? This is what he says. Have you never read what David did when he was in need? In need, point that out. And was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so he's referring to a story that happened in the Old Testament with a dude named David. And David is like the dude in the Old Testament, right? Um, the Pharisees and all the Jewish people were like, the Messiah, he's going to come from the line of David. David, that was the high point of Judaism when, like, he was the king and everything was great. But this specific passage is in 1 Samuel 21.1. And essentially what's happening in this passage that uh, Jesus is referring to is David and Jonathan had made this pact. And Jonathan went to go talk to his dad, Saul. And the pact that Jonathan and David made was... If it was okay for David to stay in the area and he was going to like be able to get in good graces with Saul again, then Jonathan was to go outside, shoot some arrows, and like hit the low spot. However, if when Jonathan went to go talk to Saul, things were bad and David shouldn't stay in the area, then Jonathan was to overshoot the target and shoot it really far away. Well, Jonathan overshot the target and it was not safe for David. So David flees with his men and he's hungry. And so he stops and um, talks to Abathar the high priest and is like, dude, I need some food. Do you have any food? And Abathar is like, well, all I've got is like the priestly bread. Um, are all of you like ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean? Can I give it to you? And David is like, of course we are. Whenever we go places, we're totally ceremonially clean. He didn't say it sarcastically like that sounded though. He was super serious about it. Um, and so Abathar is like, all right, well, here's it. He also picks up Goliath's sword at that point too because that's where it was hanging out, in the temple. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees by calling out the story and saying, you're telling me and the disciples, well, although it only says specifically the disciples reading, you're telling my disciples and me that we're not allowed to eat? Look, David did the same thing. And even more than that, he continues in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So Jesus is pointing out that their interpretation of the Sabbath is all wrong. They're looking at the Sabbath and trying to keep it in a way that just prevents them from um, really living a really living the abundant life. Instead, they're focused on the rules. And he's saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath supposed to be? What is it idealistically supposed to be? It's supposed to be a time of rest, a time of communion, a time to enjoy God and enjoy fellowship with other people and to really just have a day of rest. And the way the Sabbath really is spoken about in the Old Testament, what it's supposed to be, is a beautiful thing. There's a Sabbath rest for the people, there's a Sabbath rest for the land, and there's like this mega Sabbath rest every 50 years when you like take a whole year to, um, to the year of Jubilee, when everything rests. Rests to reorient themselves towards God, to focus on God, and rejoice with God. There's some really great books that talk about what the Sabbath is and keeping a Sabbath and holding a Sabbath. Um, one of my favorite ones was written by a gentleman named Abraham Heschel. He was a uh, Jewish leader in the late 1940s. He lived in San Francisco, and the book is simply The Sabbath. Um, but in it, he describes 
the joy and the expectation that Jewish people feel when practicing the Sabbath. Sabbath. So it's not a Christian perspective, but I definitely encourage you reading that book. It's fantastic. But coming back here, Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's something that's supposed to serve us as we reorient our lives towards God. But then he continues and says in verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now last time I was here, we already established that Jesus is claiming that he is the Son of Man. He is this hopeful, hoped-for Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying here that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Which essentially means that how his disciples are here acting on the Sabbath, especially with after, after what he said in verse 28, how they're acting is okay because he, is in, he has authority over the Sabbath. He knows he has the authority to interpret what the Sabbath is and how to live in a, in a way that's honoring to God on the Sabbath. In fact, let's continue reading, and then we'll see a little bit more about what that practically looks like. So finally, this last section. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. Now, something to point out real quick. In all the previous sections, as soon as they like see something, they accuse Jesus, they, con they confront Jesus. But this time, they see that something's going to happen, and they wait. They don't say anything. They're just looking for an opportunity to accuse Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He walks into the confrontation, intentionally. And he approaches the man, he says this. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, meaning the Pharisees, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? And some of the parallel stories in Matthew and Mark, the way that he talks about this same story, is he gives an example of um, livestock on a farm, having fallen into a pit or into a hole, and it's stuck. And if you leave it there on the Sabbath, if you do no work, then it will die, and you will lose your livelihood. Which is obvious that the obvious to everyone listening to the response would be totally save your livelihood, totally do some work and save the livestock, because otherwise, like, you're doomed, so like, do it, it's okay. But he challenges them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, or to do harm, to save life, or to kill? But how do they respond? But they were silent. They're not willing to say whether it's right to do good on the Sabbath or to kill. It's almost as if he is comparing the, see, keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. It's almost as if he's contrasting keeping the Sabbath with the commandment that says, do not murder. And he's saying, okay, well, if you want to keep the Sabbath, but um, keeping the Sabbath causes murder, then are you really keeping the Sabbath? You're breaking another command by not keeping the Sabbath. But they were silent. And Jesus' response is this. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. I think this verse is really telling, that Jesus looked around at the Pharisees when he asked them a question, and he was angry at their lack of compassion. He was angry at their lack of ability to see that preserving life is greater than keeping rules. Preserving life, preserving those who are made in the image of God, is greater than not breaking the rules of the Sabbath. He's angry and he's grieved. Also, I totally didn't know that this is another passage where it says that Jesus was angry. And what a justified thing to be angry about. 
and he's grieved at their hardness of heart. It reminds me of when he's looking over the city and he's like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you up as a um, mother hen gathers up her chicks. But you were not willing. And so in response to their silence, he does this. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus heals. In response to saying, is it right to heal, um, to save life on the Sabbath and do work? He sets the example. He shows them. He heals them. Again, he's proving his authority as God, as the Messiah, that he is over the Sabbath. Jesus is worthy. Now the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is crazy. Their response is to then go plot to get rid of him. You see, Jesus broke their boxes. Jesus didn't fit into their category of what the Messiah should do. Jesus was challenging them in a way that they were not prepared to deal with, really. He was saying that their love of tradition and their love of rules was missing the heart of the law, was missing the core of the law. In fact, it was really missing the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To keep the Sabbath as he was challenging them would mean, and the way they challenged them in verse 4 to keep the Sabbath, if they were to do that, then they would be ignoring life. They'd be allowing death to happen. Jesus is showing that he is ruler over the Sabbath, that he is the Messiah. What's crazy about their response is that the Pharisees immediately go out and hold counsel with the Herodians. Now earlier we talked a little bit about where the Pharisees came from, and one of the sites that I had read talked about, and specifically this is like Encyclopedia Britannica, so it's not exactly a biblical source, but they were postulating that the Pharisees actually come from the um, group called the Hasmoneans. Now the Hasmoneans were Jewish people who, if you've ever read or heard about the Maccabees, they were the ones who like challenged and threw off um, their Greek oppressors. This is like before the Romans came in and like said, we're ruling everything. So in Judaism, these would be like very pious people who upheld the law and wanted to serve God. But what that tradition and that desire did was it led to um, being a Pharisee, it led to valuing tradition and rules more than it led to following God. And I bring that up here because it says that they held counsel with the Herodians. Now, the thing about the family of Herod, which is the Herodians, is that Herod's family wasn't actually really totally Jewish. Like, Herod got put in place by the Roman authorities, like Herod the Tetrarch first Herod. It's a lot of Herod, so it gets super confusing. Um, he got put in charge of the Jewish people because he was kind of Jewish, but really, he was an Edomite, which meant that he was totally not Jewish. And so what's really interesting about the Pharisees' response at the end here is that you have these Jewish people who are super committed to tradition and the law and like trying to follow God in a very legalistic way. And the way they deal with Jesus is to go and associate with those who aren't really even Jewish, who are embracing the rule and the authority of Rome, and they're kind of like fighting against well, they're accepting Rome when Rome is totally like oppressing the Israelites. 
So it's like they're really ignoring all they stand for, all they live for. Which I just find interesting and really like sad, honestly. So what do we do with these three stories? We've talked about fasting, and we've talked about the Sabbath. What do we do with this? Well, we know that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. We know that fasting is not done away with, but that fasting is something that's done only after Jesus left the disciples. And I think we should look at this passage and really ask ourselves some questions. Maybe the opposite questions to the Pharisees, because I think we live in a society that knows a lot about opulence, we know about what it is to have a lot of things, but we don't really know how to fast. What does it look like for us to practice fasting? See, like the goal of fasting is to put aside things that we spend time doing in order to spend focused time pursuing God. Like the hope is that God would like speak to us and challenge us and give us direction, but we're not swaying God in this, we're just putting aside Things that we normally do in order to glorify God. Traditionally food, but there's so many things. Think about whatever in your life takes up time. Now set that aside to spend time praying and to being in the presence of God. And that's what fasting is. And if you look at Matthew 6, um, you learn about like what true fasting is, how you should do it. Essential, the essential part of the matter is you still take care of yourself and you just don't tell anyone about it. That's kind of what it talks about in Matthew 6. But also the Sabbath. We're a society that has a lot of stuff. We don't really know how to fast. But we also don't know how to rest. And like we talked about earlier, the goal of the Sabbath originally and how God gave the Sabbath was to enjoy God, was to spend time with God, to worship God, to rest and rejoice. So my question tonight is, are we so focused about our rules? Are we so focused about the rules that um, show that we're a Christian, that show that we are following Christ well, that we remember to be in relationship with God? Do we see in the do we see in fasting and do we see in the Sabbath the gospel? That Jesus has come down, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is Lord over all things. Do we see that there's an opportunity and an invitation to be with him? We don't rest and we don't fast to do good works. We do them to spend time with God and to allow Him to change our hearts. But that's only possible by the grace of God, by the grace of Jesus. He is the one who moves in us and who works in us and who changes us. And that is really why we gather. That's why we gather here at Thrive, is because we want to see God um, made famous here in Gig Harbor and in Kitsap County. We desire young adults to be on fire for Jesus. Our goal is that we would inspire other young adults who are around us to put aside the easy traps of this world and to pursue Him together. Yes, we all come from different churches, and that's an exciting thing. Um, maybe, like the theology that I grew up is going to challenge you, and the theology that you grew up is going to challenge me. And because of it, we can grow closer to God by letting Him change us and drawing near to Him. So as you leave tonight, as you get ready to move into small groups and another worship song, how is God challenging you to maybe fast? Or how is God challenging you to make Sabbath a normal rhythm of your life? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to.
God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you, God, that you care for us enough to provide us a way to rest and to provide us a way to be with you, so many ways to be with you. God, you are glorious, you are powerful, and you are good. Um, help us just to see you in daily life. Help us to see how you are working in our life, um, in our lives, and drawing us near towards you. Help us to put aside those things that trip us up, those things that ensnare us, those things that are not of you. Lord, I pray that you would um, keep us from being so focused on the rules that we miss you, that we miss the opportunity to minister to others, that we miss the opportunity to um, enjoy you. God, remind us why you came. Remind us that we are in need of you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.